Again, Father, I thank you for the privilege to be here, and I pray that some good will come out of this and faith will be affirmed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How many of you here heard my conversion story? All right, the bulk of you did. All right, I'm just going to very quickly, I want to make a point here. For those of you that didn't, I had a very, and those of you who heard it, you'll notice there was nothing logical, rational, really intellectual about my conversion story. It was totally personal, totally subjective, totally experiential. You know, it somewhat um, makes me think of somewhat, though I don't like to compare myself to the Apostle Paul in any way, shape, or form, think about Saul of Tarsus. What did Saul of Tarsus study get him to do? It got him to kill believers in Jesus. Okay? Then Saul's going along, going along, and kaboom! He has this, I don't want to use the word irrational, I like the word transrational experience. He has a supernatural experience. He has a supernatural conversion. He's kind of pulled out of the world, his worldview, given a revelation of Jesus supernaturally and popped back in, okay? And that is exactly for those of you who heard my conversion story. You know, I burned that book that night. I had no idea. It was a sinner. I had no idea of the cross. I had no idea of the atonement. I didn't know I had much about Ab. I didn't know nothing about anything. It was purely on an experience that I got converted. Okay? Anyway, the next day, after I burned that novel, after I had that experience, I went back to the health food store where the guy had given me the great controversy. And I told him what happened, you know, and, and I said I wanted to study the Bible. And they said, what do you want to study? And I said, I want to study Bible prophecy. And we did a Bible study on Daniel 2, my first Bible study. And we went through the sequence of the kingdoms. Babylon, Medea, Persia, Greece, Rome, the breakup of Rome. And I'll never forget when we came to the feet and the toes you know, of iron and clay. And the text said, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. I never forget, I, you know, this, this, this all symbolic of modern Europe. I never forget, I sat there and I burst into tears and I said, it's all true. It's all true. I mean, here in my hands, here in my hands was powerful evidence, not just for the existence of God, but for, for his foreknowledge and his sovereignty. Here on the page before me was logical, rational, objective, great, was logical, rational, objective, public evidence for belief. See, with 
with Daniel 2, my experience of the night before was now underpinned by a platform. A platform that means as solid, as rational, as faith-affirming now as it was almost 30 years ago. And see, that's what I want to look at because, you know, experiences... You know, any religion that says the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your soul, it's got to be experiential. It's got to be experience. I mean, this is nothing if there isn't an experience there. Okay, but, you know, but experiences as important as they are, that's why it's important to have an ongoing experience with the God, an ongoing relationship with the Lord. But, you know, sometimes we don't always feel so spiritual. Sometimes our, you know, experience isn't so great. Sometimes we don't feel that close to God. But see, the bottom line is, but no matter how I feel or the experiences I might have, Daniel 2 is always there, never changing, with the solid and logical objective reasons for faith. You know, you know in other words, it's objective, logical reasons for faith when you might not feel so full of faith. You might not feel so full. You might be struggling with doubt. And I want to take a little look at Daniel 2, at some elements of Daniel 2 in some ways that you might have not thought about it before. Because even to this day, after 30 years, that chapter remains a pillar for me in, in, in helping me, you know, show that I've got logical, rational reasons for what I believe. Now, if you really read the story, the narrative of Daniel 2 itself, you know, it's not exactly brimming with rationality, okay? You know, this king has a dream, and he can't remember the dream, and he tells the wise men to tell him the dream, and if they don't tell him the dream, he's going to kill them all. And so the, the, the Jewish boys go home, and they pray, to, they pray, and God tells them what it is, and they go back to the king, and they tell him the story, they tell him what the dream, Daniel tells him, and he interprets it, and they kind of all live happily ever after. I mean, that's sort of hardly the logic of geometry. However, logic and reason exude from the prophecy itself. I mean, think about it. How could a man five, six hundred years before Christ, unfold the history of the world up through, you know, all through those centuries, up through today, were he not divinely inspired? Without supernatural intervention, how could he have gone through the ages, through millennia, depicting these things as powerfully and as actively, you know, as he did. I mean, accurately, Daniel, about 600 years before Christ, lays down the history of the world, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, the division of Rome, you know, divided into the nations of modern Europe today. I mean, we're, and we're talking about five, six hundred years before Christ. You know, we're not talking about either some flighty phenomenon, you know, I mean, Joseph Smith had his magic goggles, you know, which enabled him to translate the Book of Mormon. You know, we're not talking about some, some young girls claiming to have had visions from the Virgin Mary, you know, and so on. We're talk, think about this. We're talking about something as firm, as public, and unchanging as world history itself. 
Think about it. As human beings living in this world, if God wanted to give us a solid, firm, unmovable, rational platform, what firmer, broader, larger, more immutable platform for faith could he give us than the history of the world itself? Can you see what I'm saying? We're talking about world history itself. I mean, God could blow up the world tomorrow. There'll have always been a Babylon, always been a Medo-Persia, always been a Greece, always been a Rome, had been the breakup of the nations of modern Europe. And it's, and it's, and it's locked in the past. I mean, even God I can't change the past. I mean, it's there. It happened. If you, so I'm, what I'm saying is here we are as humans, limited to this planet, you know, can't get very far off of it. What firmer platform could we have? I mean, I, you know, I've, I've thought about this. What, what more could he have done? What firmer, solid, unmovable foundation could he have given us than the history of the world itself and, and, and locked it in the past, which is immutable itself? See what I'm saying? Now, it's so powerful it's so strong that folks want, have been trying for centuries. For centuries, people have been trying to get around it because they can see the power and the logic there and the evidence that is for the God of the Bible. You know, I mean, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the supernatural, if you don't want to believe in the God of the Bible, then you're going to have to do something about Daniel too. Okay? Because it's very powerful, logical evidence for not just the existence of God, but for the existence of the God of the Bible and for his sovereignty and his foreknowledge. And so people for a long time have been trying to, to do just that. And one of the most entrenched beliefs that I could pretty much I can guarantee you could pick up, pick up almost any Bible commentary in the world today. Any Bible commentary written in the past 50, 80 years, and they will give you basically what they call the Maccabean hypothesis. And the Maccabean hypothesis claims that the book wasn't written when it says it was written, what was written many centuries later. It was written after the events themselves. I'm telling you, this is the vast, vast majority view. Almost every commentary you will find on the book of Daniel teaches that we as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not totally alone, but we're almost one of the few clinging to this. And even among with all the other nonsense in the church, we even got some of this nonsense even in it as well. And this idea was first promulgated by a Neoplatonist philosopher named Porphyry who lived about 234 to 305 AD. And he had argued that Daniel had been written in the second century BC by Jews under the siege from the Seleucid Greeks. Okay, and in other words, the book of Daniel was written, they say, about between 167 and 164 B.C. during the, you know, the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, whose defeat the Jews celebrate as Hanukkah. 
If you got Jewish friends or you see the, the menorah, the lampstand in the window, that's Hanukkah. That was the defeat of the Maccabees. And, you know, that was one of the few things as my family would celebrate as a kid. I used to like Hanukkah because you got a lot of, they call it Hanukkah guilt. You know, Hanukkah guilt. It's like you know, chocolate coins, you know, and so on. But the point is, the point is, is that all history that, Dan, that they said was written, here's the Latin phrase, my Latin isn't very good, vaticacina ex eventu, a Latin phrase for written after the happening took place. In other words, what they argue is that even though Daniel dates itself to the 7th or the 6th century B.C., they date it in the 2nd century B.C., hundreds of years later. And, and, and see, they do that as an attempt to try to destroy the power of the prophecy. Because again, you got this guy writing five, six hundred years before all these events, it's powerful evidence. Well, you just simply, what, what, what can you do? You just say it was written after all these things happened, made to look like prophecy. Now, there's been a number of problems with the Maccabean hypothesis. Okay, people have noticed them over the years. You know, first of all, they argue that there were words that Daniel used that were not supposedly not in existence in 5600 BC, so it had to have been written later. Well, more archaeology comes along and it was wrong. Those words were used back then. So that kicked that out. Supposedly Daniel made some mistakes in the names of the kings, they said. And if he lived at that time, he would have known. Archaeology proved that wrong. Okay, and then they had the other problem. They had the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated right about that same time. And so number one, the question is how did the book, and even if you could barely squeeze the book of Daniel in, you might be able to barely squeeze it in. The question is how did it get in the canon so fast? Okay, usually this takes hundreds of years for these books to ultimately be canonical. Go ahead. Now, we don't have time to get into that now. We can maybe talk about that after. But the point is, so that they, they have an awful hard time describing how did Daniel get in, even if it was, you know, made the Dead Sea Scrolls, how did it become canonical so quick? So these are some of the other problems of it. But I think there's something even better that debunks it, that you've got the prophecy itself that absolutely debunks the Maccabean hypothesis. It's almost as if I believe the Lord knew this was going to come and put something in it to help those of us who are open destroy it. Let's assume, let's assume for a moment the Maccabean hypothesis. Let's assume that Daniel was written you know, in the 160 BC. So we're talking 160 years before Christ, actually in 190 years before Christ, okay? How could somebody living, you know, 180, 190 years before Christ predict with such accuracy the dismantling of the Roman Empire into the smaller nations that would never cleave one to another even as iron does not mix with miry clay. I mean, the European nations have been fighting each other well into the 20th century. Okay, now we're in the 21st century. What, you don't think they're going to still be fighting each other over there? 
You know, I mean, I don't know. I, every time I go to Europe, I laugh when I talk about that over there, European unity. I mean, you go over there, those people don't even agree. You ever travel from country to country? They don't even agree on the same plugs in the wall. I got to get one of these devices. This is for Great Britain. This is for France. This is for Spain. You know, on and on and on. European unity, it's a joke. I mean, it's, we had to go over there twice just to keep them from killing each other. Okay? But here was a man now. Here was a man 160 years before Christ accurately depicting modern Europe today. Can you see the point here? Can you see? See, the whole point of the Maccabean hypothesis was an attempt to denude prophecy, was an attempt to denude the Bible of the prophetic power of prophecy. And yet Daniel 2's prophetic reach is so great, extending so far into the future, that it overwhelms this pathetic human attempt to nullify it. Even if I did buy into it, which I don't, a guy living a couple hundred years before Christ so accurately predicting events over 2,000 years after, it fails miserably. And think about it too. Look at the power of Daniel. Porphyry was writing in the third century AD and he was so scared, he was so scared of the prophetic power of the rational, the rational evidence presented by the book of Daniel that in the third century AD he had to try to come up with something to denude it of its prophetic power. Now, if it had that much power in the third century A.D., how much more powerful should the book be for us today? How much more powerful should the book be for us today, you know, you know 1,700 years later, where so much more history has unfolded since the time of Porphyry? And a little point, too. I mean, if Daniel was so accurate on predicting on predicting the future, you know, isn't it logical and reasonable to trust him on the dates that he himself gave for the book? I mean, he got all this right. Isn't it so much more logical? He says he wrote it then. He says, and this shows you how so messed up biblical scholarship is. Because if you lined up 150 Bible scholars, say from most colleges around the world, 149 of them, or 145 of them would say Daniel was written in the second century BC. It just shows you how messed up pretty much all human endeavors are. You know, and here's, there's more to it too. The king's dream in chapter two was a statue, world history symbolized in stone. The common, first of all, the common interpretation, Babylon, the head of gold, the arms and silver, meat of Persia, the belly and thighs, Greece, the iron legs, pagan Rome, the feet and toes, you know, papal, you know, the nations of Europe. This is not uniquely a Seventh-day Adventist interpretation. Others, Christians and Jews, have interpreted it that way for centuries. But here's the thing. This is the thing that you got to remember. This is important, particularly important for Adventists, because we're about the few people that hold on to our understanding of Rome and prophecy. In Daniel 2, unlike the first three kingdoms, Babylon, the gold stops. Babylon stops. The silver for Medo-Persia stops. The iron 
and brass for Greece stops. I mean, the, the, the bronze for, for um, Medipur for Greece stops. Then you've got the iron of the fourth kingdom. The kingdom, it's iron. It comes up after Greece. See, the, the, the gold stops, the silver stops, the bronze stops. The iron comes up after ancient Greece and goes through all the way to the end of time. Even though it changes form, mixes with miry clay, it's still iron. See the point? It's iron. The power that comes up after Greece remains. It remains until the very end of time when it's ultimately supernaturally destroyed. And there's only one power and one power alone that came up after ancient Greece in that context and has gone through and is here today and we believe will exist until the end and that's solely, totally, only Rome. Okay? Can you see the point? All those others, the iron comes up. This is especially clear if you, I'm not going to do it now, but you, you parallel Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. It's the same thing. In Daniel 7, that fourth beast comes up. Comes up after Greece. And then you got that little horn power that does all those things that's supernaturally destroyed. That's still part of the fourth kingdom. In Daniel 8, Babylon's not mentioned, but you got Medo, Persia, Greece. You got that little horn power comes up after Greece and it extends all the way down until the time of end. Till the time of the time of the end. It's the same power. So in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, it's all the, and, and 8, it's all the same thing. You've got this last power, this fourth power that comes up. All these, all these chapters, it's the same power. So the point is in all three chapters, the power that rises after Greece's fall. And, and in the centuries before Christ remains until the end. And it's, in the, and it's only one power alone. And that's Rome. No matter how politically incorrect, no matter how many people, oh, 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 it's prejudice and on and on and on. You know, it's solely, totally, only Rome. You know, you know, and it, even in Adventism, you know, we've had, I remember one left-wing publication in the church, oh, during the height of the Cold War. Well, it was Spectrum magazine. It doesn't matter. Spectrum, you know. <laughs> during the height of the Cold War, they told us, well, it should be obvious that our understanding of prophecy is wrong, about Rome is wrong, and everybody's got to know that the, that the little horn and persecuting power in the last days has got to be Soviet communism. Okay? They got it wrong. Today, some falling into similar traps are telling us it's Islam. It's Islam. But I'm sorry, the only problem is that the text point neither to Islam or Soviet communism, for starters, neither Islam nor Soviet communism started after the demise of, you know, right after the demise of ancient Greece. Okay? So we're solid on that. And here's another point, too. This is important, too, because there are attempts in the church today to give multiple fulfillments. Have you ever heard that? Multiple fulfillments. Yeah, you probably got this. It's much more common on the, 
on the conservative wing of Adventism, multiple fulfillments of the prophecies in one kingdom, in one era it means one thing, in another era it means another thing, in another era it means another thing. You know, but, Dan, you know, but the prophecy, Daniel 2 is explicit. It says four kingdoms will arise. You know, and that, and then that, until God will establish an eternal kingdom that is cut out without hands. It's very clear, four kingdoms till God's kingdom. Daniel 7, four beasts or four kingdoms will arise. Daniel 8 has three kingdoms and comes out and names two of them, Medo, Persia, and Greece. And in Daniel 2, Babylon is named for us. So if you put Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8 together, Three of the four earthly kingdoms are mentioned by name. Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece. And then so three out of the four are mentioned by name. Then if you throw in the New Testament, you throw in the New Testament, what do you got? I mean, the whole New Testament unfolds in what context? In, of Rome. Of Rome, you read about it. And there went, came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, who do you make? Who does Caesar Augustus make you think of? Now, Rome, Rome, of course. There's your fourth kingdom that's depicted in Daniel. Meanwhile, Jesus depicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which everybody knows by Rome. What does he say? He says, and when you shall see Jerusalem. And when you shall therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, you know, stand in the holy place that let them be in the mountains, flee in Judea, flee into the mountains. And the same thing in Luke 20, 21. Everybody knows that this is referring to Rome. Okay, so between Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and the New Testament, you've got the powers named for us, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, so where do you get this idea? Where do you get this idea that these have multiple fulfillments? Actually, it's, you've got it on both the right and left. Des Ford came up with this. It's called this apotelismatic principle. And in one, in one era it means one thing, and another era it means another thing, and another era it means another thing, and in the end, before long, it means nothing. Because it can mean what make it ever you want to meet. The prophecy absolutely does not allow for it. Nothing in these texts even hints at multiple interpretations. Nothing hints at all. The, they're given distinct traits. They're given distinct identities. They come in a specific historical times, and if that weren't enough, they were all but named for us. Named for us, which really limits their identity, and so no justification exists at all for this cockamamie idea that you've got, it, it's, it's on the left, but it's on the right too. I got some of my friends on the right with this. Every Middle East war, Every war in the Middle East, Iraq and Iran and all that stuff, and they're trying to find the stuff in Daniel 8, and it's got nothing to do with it. It destroys the power of the prophecy. I mean, it's Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. And in the Bible, Rome, pagan and papal Rome, is depicted as one power. All you got to do is read it. Again, don't miss the point. The iron that comes up after Greece goes all the way through 
to the feet and the toes where it's supernaturally destroyed by the stone cut out without hands. Daniel 7, that fourth beast comes up after Greece. That little horn is part of the fourth beast. It's not a separate power. That's ultimately destroyed in the great end time judgment. In Daniel 8, the little horn power that comes up after Greece goes ultimately down to the end where it's destroyed without hands. So in the Bible, even though you got historically, it's pagan and papal Rome. Do you know what one of the titles? Julius Caesar. You know what one of Julius Caesar's, Caesar's titles were before he became the emperor? He was the pagan high priest of pagan Rome. Anybody here knows what that title was? Pontifus Maximus was the name of the pagan Roman high priest. Who do I need to say anymore? Okay. Anyway, the point is I don't want to only focus on these decayed and dead kingdoms because the hope that the chapter really presents is a future hope. I mean, from our perspective today, how Daniel handled what came before should make us trust what he says comes after. And that's God's, that final kingdom, you know, the one that Jesus bought us with his blood. You know, the statue of Daniel 2 says, will be destroyed by a stone cut out without hands and nothing shall be left of these earthly empires. If you read it, the Aramaic, it says, no trace remains at all. No trace is left at all of these. The earth and we know it and all the glories and all these things are going to be gone. And then, you know, and then the only thing that will be, be left are those covered under the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. The, the Daniel 2 is clear. It's all completely wiped out. Everything will be like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind blows until, as I said, the Aramaic, no trace remains. Nothing is left of any of this old world. Now, here's the thing, too. From our perspective, Daniel got Babylon right. It's one for one. Medo-Persia came and went as he predicted, two for two. Greece came and went as he predicted, three for three. Pagan Rome came and went as he predicted, broken up. The nations of modern Europe broken up just as he predicted. In other words, from our perspective, our perspective today, everything came and went on all the kingdoms exactly as he said. From our perspective, what's the only kingdom that hasn't come? It's the last one. But he got all the others right. Kind of foolish to bet against him on the last one, especially from our perspective. We're in one sense, we've got a much better view of it than someone who lived a thousand years ago or someone who lived in the time of Porphyry. You know, those of you who heard me, I grew, grew up on Miami Beach. And I remember as a rite of passage, as a rite of passage, when you grow up, you turn 18, you go to the dog track. I was a little bit before I turned 18, I went to the dog track. 
had some money, you know, you go in, you think you're going to make a killing. But I walked in to the dog track. I was 17. And I walked in and I noticed something. There was something that was bothering me. As soon as I walked in, and it was bugging me, and I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, and I had to stop and think about it. And then I looked, and then I realized what it was. And there were 12 ticket windows. And of the 12 windows, 10 of them took your money, and two of them gave the winnings out. And right at that moment, I mean, the minute I walked in, right at that moment, I knew not only that this was a losing proposition, okay, but I had a pretty good idea what the odds were, you know, five to one against, because the ironic thing is, is I went and I, I put $5 down on a dog and I won, and I made $35. And it was funny, because the name of the dog was Classy Kim, and my wife's name is Kim. You know, I always joke about telling her, well, I made, five, I made $30 on you. But the point is, you know, the, the point is, you've got these odds against you at the racetrack. But now, look at it from, look at it from the perspective, though, of what we got with Daniel. Right on Babylon, right on Medo-Persia, right on Greece, right on pagan Rome, right on the breakup of, if you want to count it as two, you can count it as one, but the breakup of pagan Rome into the nations of modern Europe. So from our perspective, from where we are, we see he was right out of five. Five, if you're going to consider Rome, pagan and papal Rome too. He was right on this one, right on that one, right on this one, right on that one, and right on that one. Why bet against him? You know? Why bet against him on the last one? Can you see why we have such rational, logical evidence to believe? You know, to believe in the most important kingdom, you know, the second coming of Jesus? He was right on all these others. You'd have to be a fool to bet against him on the last one. Can you see the point there? Can you see the point there? It's, it's almost like it doesn't take a whole lot of faith. Okay? It would almost be foolish. Can you see the point how, you know, it would almost be foolish to not trust him on that. But, you know, here's where something else takes a little bit of faith, but it's the best reason yet for belief in the second coming and that final kingdom. And that is the first coming of Jesus. Because if you think about it, what really is the purpose of the first coming without the second coming? Okay? You know, and one said, what good does Christ's death on the cross do for us if it doesn't lead to the resurrection of the dead and to the immortality of this final kingdom in Daniel 2? I mean, to be justified, to be redeemed, to be repardoned. What, what, you know, without the second, I mean, the bottom line is, without the second coming, I will say this, without the second coming, Christ wasted his time. 
at the first coming. He wasted his time. Doesn't do me a lick of good. You want a moral system? You know, I can, you know, people, there are plenty of great moral systems out there. I mean, Mahatma Gandhi taught a good moral system. Martin Luther King, you know, taught a good moral system. I mean, as a kid, I used to watch Captain Kangaroo. Captain Kangaroo taught me a good moral system. But I need more than just a good moral system. You know, I need a savior. I need someone who's going to resurrect me from the dead. You see what I'm saying? I mean, if Jesus just came and taught a good moral, that, that's nice. Turning the cheek is that's fine. But, you know, I read a lot of philosophers. I read a lot of philosophy. And in the end, and in the end, convinced if you don't solve the problem of death, you don't solve the fundamental problem of life. If you don't, ultimately, and the older I get, and just the more my mortality, and you get older, and you see more people dying, and you just realize just the fruitlessness and the uselessness of it, of it all. If you don't solve the problem of death, you don't answer the problem of life. And that's why I'm so sure in the end about the second coming, because without it, what good is the first coming? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but in the end, in the end, my guarantee of the second coming is the first coming of Jesus, is the first coming of Jesus, because without it, without it, it means nothing. Now, that's a faith statement. That's a faith statement. I need faith, you know, to believe in that. But it's a statement that was something like Daniel 2, which is backed up with some very powerful, logical, reasonable, rational evidence to back it up. Can you see the point there? Even if I didn't believe in Jesus, you still got the power of Daniel 2. You still got the prophecies of Daniel 2 to be able to predict so far in the future. You know, I live in the D.C. area. And I know a lot of folks in the intelligence community. And these people, they don't talk. You know, a friend of mine was telling me the other day at NSA where he works, the divorce rate is like 80%. Because he said, they just, you don't bring your work home. You don't talk to your spouse about it. You just can't talk to your spouse. You can't bring it home. And he said the other day, the divorce rate is 80%. But I mean, but these people, my friend told me, he says, you, you cannot believe the capacity we have, you know, to listen in and spy and so on. He told me that years ago. And the point is, the point is, you take the most sophisticated, powerful intelligence agencies, which we have in the United States. And I asked one of my other NSA friends, during the collapse of communism, the collapse of communism, I said, did you guys have any idea it was coming? He said, we never saw it coming. Okay, two years before, two years before, I mean, these guys knew every time Gorbachev burped, they knew and they had no idea. They had no idea how it was, you know, that it was going to fall. This is a sophisticated spy knowing all this. And then you got the prophecies of Daniel. 
Daniel, 600 years before Christ, the rise and fall of these kingdoms. You know, I remember, too, when I first became an Adventist, studying about America in prophecy. You know, this was 1980. A lot of you were young for that. Some of you remember. In 1980, I mean, we had, been, we had gotten out of Vietnam with our tail between our legs. Soviet Union was firmly ensconced in Eastern Europe. The Contras had taken over, the, or no, no, the, the communists were taken over in Nicaragua. Fidel Castro was sending troops to Angola. I mean, there were communists, you know, the, in, in Southeast Asia, you know, the Khmer Rouge and the Pathet Lao and the Viet Cong, you know, were all over the place. I mean, the U.S., we couldn't kick this tin pot dictator 90 miles off the shore of America. We couldn't kick him out because the Soviet military might. And I remember thinking to myself, and this is the nation that's going to enforce the mark of the beast on the world? And I remember, I so said, I was a new Adventist, and I really struggled with that, because a lot of you were too young to remember that, but if you were old enough, think about that. Think about that. How in the world could America have ever fulfilled its prophetic role when the Soviet Union, armed to the teeth, was fighting us everywhere? And we had no idea what was going to happen. As I said, the people in the intelligence community just were baffled. And I remember, I really had a moment. I said, wow. And I felt conviction of the Holy Spirit and it brought my mind back to Daniel 2. Because, I mean, what was going to happen? Was, was the Soviet Union going to just disappear or something? I mean, at that point, it seemed impossible. And then I can remember just feeling convicted by the Spirit, Daniel 2. And what Daniel 2 showed me is that the Lord was in control of the nations. The Lord was in control of the nations. How could you not when you have that prophecy? As firmly grounded as the history of the world, locked in the past. And then sure enough, look, the next thing you know, the Soviet Union did disappear. And here we are. Here we are today. And time and again, America has been called the world's only superpower. So I guess the point um, on all this is we have some very logical, reasonable evidence for the things that we believe. I'm not going to get into it here, but you know, in the end, you need faith. I have a whole sermon I have called Math Problem. And I show how, you know, for in the 20th century, a lot of the great, for years, a lot of the great philosophers were mathematicians. Because the idea was you can have absolute certainty in mathematics. And by the time the 20th century was halfway through, that had been completely kicked out. Completely kicked out. You know, the, you know mathematics 2 plus 2 to a certain degree is a faith statement based on certain assumptions that you cannot prove within the system you're in. You've got to step outside the system to prove it. And that's fine, but then you've got to prove the system out and on and on and on. The, the point is, even something like mathematics, ultimately there's an element of faith. And see, with our religion, though, faith is built right in. It's part of it. Sure, we have to believe in things we don't fully understand.
but with something like Daniel 2, which is just part of what we're given solid, rational reasons to believe in things we don't fully understand. Anyway, I still remember my first Bible study, Daniel 2. It was over 30 years ago. And I could still say, even to this day, you know, 30 years is, what is it, you know, just over the flow of the thousands of years of history. You know, what is it in contrast, you know, to all that? And yet, even to this day, you know, that sequence of those kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, you know, it's still, it's solid evidence and to ultimate get me to trust in the coming of this final kingdom that shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. It shall stand forever. And this is the, and again, with, this is the whole purpose of the cross, the whole purpose of the first coming. I say the whole purpose, but without this, first coming really was a waste of time. And so I guess in the end, Daniel was so right on all the kingdoms that came before. He was so right on those. How foolish, how foolish it would be to not trust him on the last one a kingdom that is guaranteed us by the blood of Jesus. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org